0: Good morning. You're listening to Holding Ground here on KCANW, the show that brings you a little bit of everything when it comes to psychotherapy and topics in mental health. I'm your host, Laura Richer. I'm a psychotherapist and the founder of Anchor Light Therapy Collective in Seattle, Washington. Maintaining positive mental health at times can be hard. However, there are things that we know for sure can support our mental health, and one of those things is playing sports. There is a ton of published research that discusses the positive impact of playing sports on mental health, especially for kids and teens. Playing sports can teach valuable life skills like resilience, endurance, and how to work with others. It can also support cognitive development, improving focus and problem-solving skills. And sports can facilitate community, a space where youth and adults can bond with their peers as well as learn from coaches, teachers, and mentors. And while the benefits of playing sports on mental health are well documented, no one is excluded from dealing with mental health challenges. In recent years, we've heard from athletes competing at the highest and most prestigious levels coming forward to discuss their own mental health challenges. And there are concerns about whether the pressure to compete could have a detrimental effect on the mental health of some, as well as concerns for risking serious injury. So today, we have the perfect guest to weigh in on this topic. If you're a Washington sports fan, Brock Heward needs no introduction. He's a former NFL quarterback who's played for the Huskies and the Seahawks. And today you can find him on Fox Sports, where he's a football analyst. Also co-hosting the Brock and Sox show on ESPN Radio, as well as doing philanthropic work with charitable organization, Fill the Stadium. So Brock, thanks for taking the time to join us today.
1: That was cool. That uh, As you were reading all of that, Laura, my mind went about a million different ways. I was a psychology major way back when at the University of Washington. Very cool. Uh, I have an aspiring, a couple of daughters that are aspiring basketball players. One is at the University of Montana, one is a junior. And my junior really aspires to be a sports psychologist. That is,
0: wow. You know, I think,
1: yeah, I think she'll be an amazing coach. Mm-hmm. She wants to do that as well. She'll play college basketball. And, and as she's kind of narrowing her list and making her choice, those programs and those universities that have a very strong psychology and sports psychology harm to it are very attractive to her. So this is going to be a a great conversation. Been looking forward to doing it with you.
0: Me too. So is that, was that your focus in college specifically on sports psychology or more general psychology?
1: Yeah, twenty five years ago, last century, before you were born, Laura. I don't know if there was "quote unquote" sports psychology. <laughs> you know, I don't. There was abnormal psychology. There was, you know, lots of different uh, classes that I took at the University of Washington. I don't honestly, you know, I say that jokingly, mm-hmm. but I played at the UW in the yeah. in the mid nineties, ninety five to ninety eight. Was drafted to the Seahawks in ninety nine. It wasn't until. I went to the Colts. I got traded to the Colts in 2003 that I had my first introduction to sports psychology. Actually, the starter there, Hall of Famer, Peyton Manning, um, you know, very bright guy ahead of the curve in many ways as a player, as a professional, now as a businessman. He had a sports psychologist and the Colts actually hired this doctor out. And that was my first my first introduction to sports psychology so no i went to the university of washington to play football thought i wanted to go to med school i did three years of med school pre-med and then uh, ultimately finished with a psychology degree and was able to fool them in the nfl for six years so did not go back to med school uh, but as you said in the intro moved on into the sports media world
0: well, and it seems so necessary, especially I would think for well, anybody, but for college kids and and young professional athletes going pro and they're they're having access to so many things, money and fame and and all of the other the trappings that come with success, that there would be a need for something like that. Did you when you were playing pro, did you notice people run into obstacles that maybe a psychologist might have been helpful?
1: Oh, I don't think there's any question. And, yeah. and I'll be honest with you. Um, I am one of those stories. So mm-hmm. that was 2002, 2002, 2003, that I was in Indy. And I remember meeting with the sports psychologist and thinking, ooh, I better not do this. Mm-hmm. Like, I know I need this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, my mind raced and the voices that spoke in my head and a lot of the negativity and and just being able to process those things. Yeah. But honest to goodness, Laura, I said, geez, if, this, if the Colts... Who already probably think i'm a, a little mentally fragile or you know a, a little bit of a, a of a backup right and and just a, a nervous nelly at times or an overthinker you know i think yeah. most would say especially in my professional career you're just an overthinker okay which is great for radio and mm-hmm. it's great for the, the booth uh sometimes as a player that's not great and i remember going to the sports psychologist once or twice mm-hmm. and thinking nope can't do it yeah like if the colts hear about this it's going to be detrimental and negative for peyton no problem. Right. He's a yeah. pro bowler. He's an amazing player. This is yet another tool in his arsenal for me as a backup and an overthinker already. It was like, no, no I'm good. Right. No. Just that hardened. Yep. I, I don't need this. I'll work through it myself. And in retrospect, 20 years later, mm-hmm. boy, do I wish I would have plugged into that a little, a lot more.
0: And it's unfortunate that that stigma was in place and still is, to, of, of course, to some degree. But it's great. It's, you know, we hear athletes, like Kevin Love comes to mind and other professional athletes that have been willing to talk about mental health and willing to talk about seeking help. So do you see that changing with today's athletes?
1: Oh, tremendously. Yeah. I mean, Tom Brady and Peyton Manning and Drew Brees and all of those guys. Yeah. And, and you can see it, you know, as a psychologist mm-hmm. and, and, you know, Peyton had a few rhythms uh, that he would do to kind of flush every play. He would like pull up his knee brace and that was kind of his mechanism. Okay. That play is over. Yeah. It's in the history books. There's nothing I can do. If I dwell on it and think about it, it we'll do nothing but interfere with what's to come. Drew Brees would like tug on his shoulder pad, right? You could just see these mechanisms that you knew we're training, oh, you know, wow. and much like you train your body, yeah. right. And guys are so religious and disciplined about that, you know, and Tom Brady would eat his avocado ice cream, you know, into his <laughs> mid forties and have a discipline that not many human beings yeah. have. He had, and took that approach, Russell Wilson in, yeah. in Seattle front and center. Right. I mean, as much as he worked with the late Trevor Moad, who became a good friend of our, uh, of ours and our family, and just a wonderful man who, who just said, we train everything else, right? When you train your body and yeah. and you run the race to win and you push and you strive and you strain, well, what about the most important, right? Your brain, you, you know, the element, yeah. your brain, yeah. your brain. Absolutely. Um, and do you train that and do you work that? A quick little side story. Uh, my daughter and I were at Kansas State University, one of the schools that she is really considering. And we went there. And got a chance. Just a dad daughter trip was awesome. Uh, we drove out there and and we got a chance to watch them pre practice. Uh, they had a Saturday night game. Got there in the early afternoon. We watched them practice. And how about this, Laura? The mm-hmm. end of their practice, the last uh, probably five to seven minutes of their practice. Once the work with the ball on the court ended, they had it turned the lights down low in the arena, and they had their time, their their meditation time, their quiet time. I you know, love you could to hear, hear that. Yes, you could hear over the loudspeaker a company that they have hired um, that's on their staff and, you know, just speaking to them about their thought process and be in the moment and what are you visualizing and all of these things. And part of me is like, man, you know, 25 years ago to your question, Mm -hmm. Laura. You know, uh, is it still stigmatized today as it was then? We have made huge strides to the point that a women's college basketball program ends their walkthrough with that sports psychology, psychology that psychoanalysis, that visualization wow. that they know is such an important tool.
0: Wow. I love to hear that. So that was my next question for you, because I know both you and your wife are athletes. And now you have children who are athletes and are playing at the college level. Did you see them go through any struggles that were different than what maybe you and your wife went through going through athletics? Or do you think that they had more tools now? It sounds like there's in terms of mental health, there's more resources.
1: I think I have said to both of my daughters, um, as I said, my oldest in college, the next one getting there real Mm -hmm. soon. And then I've got a 12 year old son. I know I've said this to my two daughters numerous times, as has my wife. It is both a blessing and a curse mm-hmm. that your mom and dad have done this journey, <laughs> yeah. right? It is a blessing because we can be transparent and honest mm-hmm. of what this journey looks like, yeah. uh, the rigor of it, the tough times of it, the mm-hmm. tears, the pain, the injury, the heartache, the sacrifice, the discipline, all of those things that uh, that we know because we've done this journey, uh, you know, we can share those with you. And that's a that's a blessing that others may not have it's also a curse mm-hmm. because we know what is to come and how difficult and arduous yeah. this journey is. And maybe the expectations others will put on you because, mm-hmm. wow, your mom and dad did it. And they went, you know, on this journey and, and they played ahead of you. And so the expectation level can be a whole lot higher for them to deal with. So, you know, we try to be as transparent as we can be, and yeah. we fail. And as much as I want to think I'm a, I'm a great parent, because I have been there and I've done it and I've got this wonderful perspective, my adrenaline, my testosterone, my emotion still revs and runs hot, you know, competitively and and I'll fall short and fall short as a parent fall short as a fan and, you know, amongst others in the stands and, and still get way too emotional and way too caught up in it. But A blessing and a curse is the best way transparently we've tried to communicate that to our kids.
0: And you also had that experience because your dad was your football coach in high school and your brothers played football as well. Did you feel that pressure having family who were already, you know, sounds like football was in your blood?
1: It was. Uh, th- yeah, there were a few times that steam had to be blown, um, mm-hmm. and I remember pretty vividly going into my senior year where expectations were very, very high, and and my dad was my coach. and My dad did a wonderful job of walking that delicate balance in line as a, as a coach of your own mm-hmm. children, of pushing and challenging and knowing, hey, I'm, I'm going to be hard on you, so everybody knows in this entire community, there's no favoritism and anything else. But yeah, there was a, t- a time after a practice in fall camp going into my senior year where I just, you know, had just lost it emotionally. It was just, it was just too much. Yeah. And, um, and it wasn't necessarily a practice. It was off the field. We lived pretty close to the football stadium and I walked home, didn't want any part of them. I'm mad and in tears and emotional. And yeah, we had a very much a heart to heart in that moment of, I understand you're demanding and you're pushing me, mm-hmm. but there's a line here and this yeah. is just, it's just too much and, uh, he had a, you know, as a, is a tough guy, old school football coach, he had a, a soft heart in those moments. And, um, you know, the, the players used to joke, cause he would, he'd be honest, everybody, he he pushed and he challenged and he got the most out of us, a uh, hall of fame, high school coach in the state of Washington and very renowned. And, and he had a wonderful ability, as I said, to, to push and to pull and, and, and to challenge you as much as you could. And then he put his arm around you. And the guys would joke because he would yell at us, and then he'd call us honey.
0: Okay. I, yes, <laughs> I love Come that. Come here, honey. Yeah. Like It was
1: it was the funniest thing to to teammates and my peers in high school. Like, yep, he is still uh, still your dad, and, yeah. and had a, a sensitive enough heart to uh, to handle and relate to his sensitive middle child son.
0: That's a tough line to walk, being coach and dad, and and finding that balance. Do you coach any of? Have you coached any of your kids?
1: I have with Titus. Mm-hmm. Yep. I've kind of managed his little league baseball teams for a few years, and, and it is.
0: Yeah.
1: And the assistants in, in the dugout with me, whose sons are on the <laughs> team, and we'd have that conversation quite a bit, yeah. you know, because you feel like it's easiest to challenge your own kid, right? Mm-hmm. To just really push them and get into them because they're kin and they're blood, and, and they, they know hopefully that there's an unconditional love attached to that, to some of that discipline and some of that teaching. But yeah, you have to remind, you know, each other, hey, you know, just like, take it down a notch. You know, this is kind of crossing the line here, right? Um, Demanding, not demeaning. Yeah. Demanding, not demeaning. I think that that is such a critical area in parenting, in coaching, in teaching. You could be demanding, but once you cross over into that demeaning, boy, you sure lose your own kid and any of the kids you try to coach.
0: Yeah. And is that a change in mindset for maybe what things were like 20 years ago?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. uh, I, I think very much so. Yeah. I think, you know, there is a, a huge learning curve that we've all climbed mm-hmm. in this in this field of psychology and, and mental health and yeah. Yeah, I mean, in, in not even in my era, as much as the era that preceded me, mm-hmm. in my era was a little bit of a tipping point, right? I talked yeah. to you about Peyton using a sports psychologist in yeah. the early 2000s, and Tony Dungy was our mm-hmm. coach in Indianapolis for those two years. Mm-hmm. And Laura, in two years, he raised his voice twice, Wow! and there was not a curse word. He never swore in two years. He never demeaned. He did not use fear right? Whether demeaning or fear as that tool of motivation, that was just not the way he went about it. And the more that you have seen those, those types have success Mm -hmm. and relate and win championships and grow. I think you've come to realize you don't need to demean. You don't need to use fear. Those are not the most powerful tools in your tool bag as a leader, as a coach, as one that, that needs to teach and equip your your team and, and your young players.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And there's a ton of research uh, in, around shame and how that isn't really effective in creating behavioral change. And so being inspirational and like you said, demanding, but not demeaning is a much more effective method, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's one that I've got to be reminded of as a parent. And mm-hmm. it just was this morning before we we're uh, oh, yeah. This podcast. <laughs> yeah. My wife just said, you know, the way that you chat with our almost 17 year old daughter at mm-hmm. times, very not helpful. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know that or, or <laughs> you know, like you can't talk to her the same way you may talk to Titus. It is yeah. just a, a different age and a different time, you know, raising teenage daughters has yeah. been humbling. There's, mm-hmm. there's moments where, you know, I, I read a good line. Uh, someone said that there's so many books written about parenting mm-hmm. uh, for young toddlers. And then there are a lot of books written about prayer for teenagers and beyond. Yeah. Right. Like you think you got to figure it out when they're, you know, controllable and yeah. robots and they're scheduled and everything else. And then once that line of independence and you've got to let go and you've yeah. got to allow them to grow and develop you get on your knees a little bit more and you start praying rather than trying to tell everybody what a wonderful <laughs> parent you are yeah. and all the scheduling that you were once able to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And teenage girls are a tough crowd. There's no question about that. So does your son play football?
1: He is, He has. He's played a lot of flag football. Okay. So he's just kind of turning the corner. He'll be a seventh grader next year. And that was kind of the line for me sixth, seventh grade uh, before you put the pads on and you play full contact and a lot of my peers and friends and, and I've kind of watched it through the years that there's no perfect age for every kid, mm-hmm. but, uh, to me, just body control, being able to handle your body, being able to, to wear the helmet and pads that can be heavy and not have your, you know, bobblehead. Cause your neck can't support the weight of the helmet. Heavy <laughs> helmet. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's cute watching yeah. these, these little guys run around, mm-hmm. um, and the impacts are not too severe, mm-hmm. but just for the actual growth and development, we've kind of waited to this marker and, and he will put the pads on and play, uh, physical contact-wise, for the first time in the fall.
0: Oh wow! So, how do you feel about having a son go go into playing football now? Well,
1: I love the fact that right now his first love is baseball. Okay, and I, I love that yeah. that uh, that he's doing a, a little something different than the course of our family and and you mentioned my dad was our coach mm-hmm. and there were three boys: Damon, I'm in the middle, Luke's my younger brother. Damon played twelve years in the NFL, two Super Bowls. His son Sam uh, is a is Freshman at the University of Washington, got to play a little bit this year as a true freshman there, a quarterback, very talented young player following a very similar path uh, that the dad and uncle followed at the University of Washington. I kind of love right now at this stage that my son Titus is enjoying baseball as much as he does. Lori, in your opening statements, you talked about sport and the benefits of it. Mm And all of the uh, the positives that come from community and hard work and sacrifice and discipline and, and overcoming failure and celebrating wins and endorphins that are released, I think, through some of that success yeah. and, and the tears and the alligator tears that are released in, in really hard moments. And all of that is so fruitful. I think there is so much fruit born in it. I think one of the challenges in, in this phase of our life, and this is my encouragement to anybody listening now is to try to keep your kids playing as many sports as Mm -hmm. they can, you know, and specialization has become so rampant for all of the benefit that we talked about in this Mm -hmm. podcast of uh, mental health Mm -hmm. and, and uh, sports psychology. One of the negatives of the last 20 years is specialization.
0: Oh, tell me more about that.
1: Well, so I saw a great tweet, um, I forget the the site that tweeted it out during the NFL playoffs, mm-hmm. the final eight quarterbacks that were, were left in the NFL playoffs. So final eight out of 32 teams, 25% mm-hmm. the final eight of them, those, those eight combined to letter in 24 sports in high school. Oh, wow. Yes. Seven of the eight were, well, one of them was a four sport athlete, Ryan Tannehill, six of them were three sport athletes Matthew Stafford was a football, baseball and a high level baseball mm-hmm. catcher. So that limited him to just two sports. Every six of them played three sports in high school. Wow. And you just don't see that today. You know, there's so many of these youth programs and club teams, uh, Laura, that just say, Hey, you know, if you want your little Johnny mm-hmm. and your little Jenny to get a college scholarship, they got to do this year round. Yeah. They got to have that soccer ball on their foot. They've got to train. They've got to have lessons. They got to, it has got to be soccer, soccer, soccer. Hey, it's got to be baseball. You want your little son, you know, or softball to be a college or pro. Like, look at it. They've, they've got to play and you can mm-hmm. develop that skill and golf. You know, you got to specialize, you know, at age five, go ahead. Tiger Woods, look at yeah. him. He didn't do anything else. Yeah. And there, there be, there's become this hyper-focus and and to a degree the skill development is off the charts my wife would tell you mm-hmm. that fifth grade girls today are doing what she did skill wise in high school oh wow like they are amazing skill development but but when you become so singular focused mm-hmm. and so specialized a not great for your joints in your body b not great for your overall competitive development and agility and, and other things that the other sports bring mm-hmm. And, but B or C in that, just handling the failure that comes in right. those other sports too.
0: Right. Because so the truth is, is most kids are not going to play at the college level. And no. so if they specialize nope. that young, what are they losing?
1: They're losing the opportunity to compete in all those other sports. Yeah. All the fruit that can be born in all yeah. that other community of all the other sports. The grind, the strain, the good, the bad, the ugly, right? Yeah. All of that. The friendships, mm-hmm. the memories that you do create. Mm-hmm. Playing all of those other sports. But I would say for as much gain in the mental health capacity that we have seen, we are nearly seeing the same detrimental forces of specialization because it just makes the family so hyper-focused. They spend so much money. They spend the year planning their schedule around, okay, we're gonna go to this tournament and this tournament, and we're gonna have this trainer and we're gonna pay all this money. And then their expectations, right? Yeah. They're off the charts. Um, again, another conversation my wife and I were just having about AAU basketball, mm-hmm. right? The highest level of high school basketball and club ball that you can play. And just how hostile and how hard it's become, because there are less and less and less scholarships right now for these high school players, the transfer portal, the extra COVID year, the NCAA allowed for these, these, these players in college, it has just flooded the market and it has minimized the number of opportunities for high school uh, athletes across many sports. So now all of a sudden you get to the summertime, Laura is a psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. I think you'd leave the gym. At times. I I honestly think you would be so discouraged at what you were witnessing. Mm. Just the level of violence on the court, the animosity, parents being, you know, pulled out of gyms screaming at refs because they feel like, hey, this is our window. This is our window in this tournament in front of these coaches to get our scholarship that we have spent years and years and years investing in. And we have to capitalize in this moment and the pressure the parents put on the kids and the pressure that the kids feel and the pressure playing in front of all of these coaches. It is it is ugly. I mean, it is an explosion of emotion that you see at times that I think anybody in in the mental health field would realize this is not this is
0: not this is not
1: beneficial to. And I've seen some of those
0: of those kids as adults who have some resentment and a little bit of uh, what we call little t trauma in therapy, in yeah. that it it ruined the experience for them and the pressure that that they, they. I have one client who played uh, college soccer who wants nothing to do with soccer anymore because the pressure and what the, what the parents did in the process was so yeah. unsettling that they grew to hate the sport.
1: Yes. Yeah. And unfortunately you do. That's, that's not a, that's not uncommon. And I think through this specialization, mm-hmm. quite honestly, you are going to see more and more of that in the years to come. That yeah. it, it just, it's overwhelming. We had a, a good friend of ours, went through the very competitive club soccer mm-hmm. and it is incredibly competitive mm-hmm. in the state of Washington as a bunch of states, but soccer is a big, big deal in the state of Washington mm-hmm. and their youngster was thriving and achieving and growing. And then all of a sudden got to about 15, 16 and just said, I'm done.
0: Doesn't want anything to do with it.
1: I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. And, it's and so much pressure. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like yeah. we're on the top team. Yeah. You're on a path to a college scholarship. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you mean you're done? I'm, I'm just done. I'm so burnt out. I can't do it anymore. Um, it's it's unhealthy and I'm done. Yeah. And you know, there that unfortunately, whether it's your client, mm-hmm. I, I could name a bunch of folks sure. along the way that we have found that. And I think specialization in that way, again, can be so incredibly harmful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are just about out of time, for, but before we go for today, I wanted to hear a little bit about the organization you're involved with, fill the stadium. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it has been an incredible initiative. So, so cool. So Compassion International Mm -hmm. is a big um, ministry for about 50, 60 years, um, supporting kids around the globe in the most adverse poverty. Mm -hmm. They just pour into these communities into some of the most difficult Laura, I've gotten to travel to El Salvador and Guatemala and the Dominican Republic with them and to see the work that they do. Right. We love in the United States. These after school. Right. We have YMCA. We have Boys and Girls Clubs. We have these places. For kids to go and and maybe kids that don't have great family environments don't have stable places to go and we have these facilities in many ways that's what compassion does around the globe they build these projects around churches and whether it's education it's medicine it's nutrition it's athletics they try to holistically spiritually Give these places um, in the most abject po- you know, poverty mm. around the globe, uh, give these projects, give these kids an opportunity to just break through the poverty, break through the generational poverty and empower them educationally. As I said, uh, in Guatemala, in, in one of the projects we saw, they had an electrical lab you know so that they could be an apprentice by the time they're done with high school and go on and get a job right and just work your way and say no we can do this there is hope and there is vision so compassion international has been doing that for decades and decades and what filled the stadium in that initiative was um when the pandemic hit compassion knew like it's going to be bad in the first world it is going to be an atrocity and there is going to be starvation and there's going to be so much pain in the third world and when everything's shut down No concerts, no conventions, no churches, Mm -hmm. Uh, Compassion could not get the sponsorships. So it's a child sponsorship. You know, you pay $39 a month and you get to sponsor a child around the globe. Well, they felt like with all of the shutdown in America and around the globe, Mm -hmm. they would lose out on about 70,000 sponsorships of kids um, that they knew they had the infrastructure. They had the opportunity. They had the communities where these kids were ready. To be sponsored, it's about seventy thousand, which turns out is the average size of an NFL stadium. So Jimmy mulatto the president of Compassion, a dear friend of mine, Steve stenstrom said, "You know what? Let's fill the stadium. Mm. Let's fill the stadium. Seventy thousand kids. They cannot go. um They cannot. They cannot be in, in outside uh, of, of of our help and our hands and our love and our resources. So we're going to fill this stadium up. Right? A visual of seventy thousand kids." And it was about a $40 million undertaking. Uh, We ended up with 76,000 kids sponsored over about a year and a half of that campaign and that initiative. Athletes from women's soccer players, Mm -hmm. PGA Tour golfers, uh, Major League Baseball players, NFL players, many of them were part of this team, Mm -hmm. both, you know, just raising awareness and, and their own resources, yeah. frankly, their own millions of dollars poured into this to get those 76,000 kids sponsored. So it was an amazing, amazing just opportunity to watch a, a an incredible organization and watch community, much like in our locker rooms, yeah. right? much like this conversation. Yeah community come together for an incredible, incredible good. And um, and to see that happen was just um, miraculous.
0: That's fantastic. So are they keeping it going as filled the stadiums? Was it a one-time project or do, are they continuing on with it?
1: Yes, yeah, so you could go to fillthestadium.com. You could okay. see the website. They're still taking donations to that because okay. obviously there is still Always much, need. much need. Yeah. Um, so we have filled one stadium. Maybe we will fill another stadium. Um, so so I, they're in the works of like, wow, this has been such an amazing undertaking from our community. of. Of athletes and, and others to to make this to make this happen and so uh, they're in the process of figuring out um, but there is always need there will you know always 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 be need and, and yeah. need and through this pandemic we have seen that need arise so much more in these third yeah. world countries so yeah. thank you for asking about that it yeah is something of course that, uh, it sounds super, like a super, super passionate about yeah
0: an amazing organization well Brock thank you so much for joining me today I, this has been a great conversation I know our listeners will really enjoy I really appreciate it.
1: That went way too fast. Yeah, it goes you know, quick. I, <laughs> uh, that was a blast, yeah. Laura. Thank you for having me and and uh, for your fiance, Travis, and everything that you two are doing in your community to to really bring awareness to mental health. And we have seen huge gains. There's more to be had. Yes. And, and work like this and a podcast like this is just a privilege to be a part of. So thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to Holding Ground. You can hear us here every Tuesday morning at 9.30 a.m. on KKNW. I'm Laura Richard, Anchor Light Therapy Collective. Find us online at anchorlighttherapy.com. And we'll see you next week.